we're just going to dive right in this subject of the mercy of God and the justice of God, God's forgiveness and his judgment. How do we think about that? How do they work together? What is this? So we're going to start in Numbers 14, verse 18, probably one of the most famous verses from the entire Old Testament. Most of you have it memorized without even knowing it. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. If you are like me, you read that verse and it looks, seriously, it looks like God is bipolar. There could not be a more exact contradiction than this one sentence. God says, I am full of loving kindness. I forgive all your sins. I never forgive your sin. What in the world is he saying? It's a very famous verse. We love the first half. And lots of seriously questionable doctrine is presented out of the second half. What does this mean? Is God bipolar? Does God, is God double-minded? Absolutely not. Does the Bible contradict itself? No way. So this verse is one sentence. It's not even two verses side by side. It's one sentence. What is God saying? He is saying that my mercy and my judgments are inseparable. I cannot say one without the other. In fact, mercy cannot exist unless there is complete justice. And justice cannot exist unless there is mercy. Okay, a couple of you are with me. Others of you are thinking. This is one sentence where God appears to contradict himself so blatantly. But it is not. It is God showing that his mercy and his judgment are inseparable God cannot show mercy unless justice is accomplished, and he cannot be just without being merciful. We would tend to see mercy and justice as polar opposites that compete with each other, but in God, they are the same thing, actually. They're not separate opposites that compete, that if if I give justice, then I'm not showing mercy, or if I show mercy, then justice isn't accomplished. That's our human thinking, but God can do both at the same time. Justice and mercy are actually complementary in that they complete each other. They're actually symbiotic. If you go back to high school biology class, you'll remember the word symbiosis. Two things that live off of each other, and if one dies, the other dies. Justice and mercy are symbiotic. Mercy absolutely depends on perfect justice, and perfect justice depends on mercy. They cannot be separated. And I have told you this Uh, several times got this first example from rick joiner years ago how god demonstrates justice and mercy in the very same act he doesn't do one judgment act and one merciful act he does the same thing and it is justice and mercy at the same time and the example i've used with you uh, numerous times is when he passes a death sentence on adam and eve and casts them out of the garden of his presence and he says you may never come back that is his punishment on their sin But it is also mercy because he blocks them from eating of the tree of life so that they cannot live eternally in sin. The death sentence is their punishment, but it is also the release from this existence and we get to start over in the next life. Do you see it? God doesn't do one thing that's just and another thing that's merciful. He does one thing and it's both. It is punishment and forgiveness. It is justice and mercy at the same time. The mark of Cain 
is the next example in Scripture that is God's punishment and His mercy at the same time. Cain kills Abel. God puts a mark on his forehead. He said, I am going to mark you in front of everyone forever. You are labeled a murderer. And Cain cries out for mercy, and God says, yes, the mark is also going to protect your life. No one will be able to kill you. God does one thing, and it is justice and mercy at the same time. Do you see it? The flood is God's justice and mercy on the earth. The plagues in Egypt are God's justice and mercy. The death of Samson is God has mercy and he also is exacting justice on the Philistines and on Samson. Do you see it? But Samson is voluntarily giving his life. So there's that symbiosis again. But God has mercy on Samson, restores his strength. But Samson dies as a consequence of his sin. God does one thing, and it's both. David and Bathsheba, an adulterous marriage that never should have happened, God punishes them by killing their first child, but then he says your fourth child of a marriage that never should have happened will be Solomon, the next king. I have mercy on you, and I judge you for the same sin. All of the Old Testament prophecies of destruction and judgment on Israel In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, they all contain the messianic promises of Jesus. All of the beautiful promises of restoration and life and salvation in the Messiah are wrapped in promises of, I am going to destroy you because you're so wicked. One of the most famous, well-loved verses in the Old Testament is, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and plans to increase you, plans to give you a future and a hope. That is wrapped in chapters and chapters of you are going to eat your own feces because of your sin. I am going to destroy you. And right in the middle, here's mercy. They're not even separate sections of the book. It goes back and forth because they cannot be separated. God is not just if he is not merciful. He is not merciful if he is not just. The Babylonian conquest itself, when God finally does destroy Israel and Judah, he sends Nebuchadnezzar in and they literally wipe Jerusalem off the face of the planet. God says, this is my judgment on your sin. But he tells the faithful remnant, the people who had stayed true to Jehovah God, this is my mercy on you because I'm removing this wicked system that you have lived in. God says in Ezekiel, I'm cutting off the trunk of this wicked tree, but I'm not killing the roots. You will regrow. It is justice and mercy. And the death of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate display of God's judgment and mercy at the same time. In one act, at one moment, God performs the ultimate judgment and the ultimate mercy that will ever happen. So most of us, again, we would see in our human reasoning, we would see that justice is separate from mercy, and we would say justice is that the sinner gets what he deserves, that the criminal pays for what he did. And we would say mercy is the opposite of that, where the criminal doesn't pay, where the sinner doesn't face the consequences of her actions and she doesn't have to pay for what she did. But it isn't merciful to release someone from the consequences of their sin. That just allows more sin. It isn't merciful to not discipline your kids. That's fear and weakness. 
the most loving thing you can do is put a stick on their backside because you are saving them from prison and hell. There has to be justice and punishment and discipline. But there is no justice without mercy or we turn into Pharisees that just apply the law in an impersonal way and we end up killing everybody. We have to consider the person and the circumstances and the motives and the consequences. Chris Vallotton calls this truth intention, that God seems to say things that are polar opposites, but they're actually both exactly equally true. And we have to live in the tension of both of them. And here is one example of justice and mercy. Proverbs 24, Solomon and God says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. God says, Solomon says, When I come and punish a wicked person, do not celebrate. This displays the heart of God in another verse that he says, The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Nobody wins when evil happens. God comes to punish the wicked person. They get what's coming to them. Still everybody lost. Don't celebrate. But it's fascinating to me. God says the reason I don't want you to celebrate is because I don't want to quit bringing wrath. Don't be happy when something bad happens to your enemy. That's not what my heart is. I'm brokenhearted that any of you did anything evil. So Solomon tells us that, but his dad David, who is the display of the heart of Jesus in the Old Testament, he's the man after the heart of God, David says this, The righteous shall rejoice when they see God's vengeance. They shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. David says, we will dance in the blood of the wicked people that God destroys. And we should. Should we not celebrate when an ISIS soldier dies? Should we not celebrate? That there's a child rapist going to go to prison for the rest of his life? Should we not celebrate when a drug ring or a prostitution ring is broken up? Absolutely. Praise God that truth and justice win. So which one is it? Yes. The whole thing is tragic. The whole thing is broken and evil and wicked. Praise God, he will win in the end. Yes. We should celebrate when wicked people get punished. His mercy causes us to be justified and his justice will cause us to call for mercy. If Jesus is our king, what kind of a king do we want? Picture a king on his throne, crown on his head, and we're all his subjects. It's literally true. 
but we don't live in that in the physical world, so it's kind of hard for us to recognize, but what kind of a king do we want? Well, I don't want a harsh legalistic tyrant, but I don't want a wimp either. I want a king who enforces the law. I want a king who cares about safety and order in his realm. I don't want a king who doesn't care what's happening with the peasants and just deals in corruption and money and his own interests and leaves us to our own devices. I want a king who, when I go to him with my court case, he listens. And he's interested in justice because he loves us. Do you see that they're inseparable? A king cannot be interested in justice if he doesn't love his people. And if a king loves his people, he will be interested in their justice. If God is loving, then he has to be just. And if he's just, he has to be loving. So again, we would say, kind of get this idea somehow that justice and mercy are mutually exclusive. That we have to pick one or the other. Either judgment or forgiveness. But that's not true. But it sure does seem like Jesus picked one. Doesn't it? I was very clear that the New Testament is pretty loaded one side toward mercy, forgiveness, not being judgment. Yeah, it's true. Lots and lots of stories and verses and teachings. You got Jesus with the woman at the well and Jesus with the woman caught in adultery and the parable of the unforgiving servant who beats up his fellow servant because he owes him a little bit of money. And we've got the parable of the prodigal son and Jesus says, you don't throw stones unless you don't have any sin. That's all crystal clear. It's 100% true. And you would go anywhere in any brand of church anywhere in the world and you would hear the truth about forgiveness. It is crystal clear. We must turn the other cheek. We must forgive. We cannot return evil for evil. We have to bless those who curse us. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. It's crystal clear. We have no option. We have no choice. Our king demands that we be gracious, that we be loving, that we be merciful to the worst offenders in our lives. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's crystal clear. That forgiveness is a requirement. Jesus says if we do not forgive, we are not forgiven. But then there's a lot of verses in the Bible that don't mesh with what is taught about forgiveness. If you think I'm leading toward telling you you don't have to forgive, don't, don't be afraid. That's not where I'm going. But I am going to tell you that our understanding of forgiveness is quite incomplete, I think. Because of the weakness of our culture. We interpret it wrong. When Jesus tells us, forgive, 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 bless, turn the other cheek, do good, does that mean he doesn't care about what was done to us? Does he expect us to just forgive and forget? I hope you all know that's not in the Bible. Jesus never says forgive and forget. It's not Scripture. It's not godly. Are we just supposed to say, well, this terrible thing happened, but I guess God doesn't allow me to feel anything about that. I just have to forgive. No, there's some folks in Scripture that are solid, godly people that they have some really strong feelings about what was done to them. And it's totally okay. 
Let's start in Psalm 109. It's not going to be on the screen because I'm going to read you the whole psalm. Psalm 109, written by David. Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue, and they have also surrounded me with words of hatred. They have fought against me without a cause. To return, in return for my love, they are my accusers. I give myself to prayer. They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David says, God, help me. I've got evil people sinning against me. I have loved them. I've treated them right. And they return evil and hatred toward me. Listen to David's prayer to God about his enemies. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife become a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from desolate places. Let the creditors seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let any favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the sin of his fathers always be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth because he did not remember to show mercy He persecuted the poor and needy man. He might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, let it come upon him. As he did not delight in blessing, let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as his garment, let it enter his body like water and like oil in his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him for a belt which girds him continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accuser and those who speak evil against me. You, O God, the Lord, deal with me according to your name's sake, because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens, I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your mercy, that they may know that it is your hand that you, the Lord, have done this. Let them curse. But you bless. While they arise, let them be ashamed. Let your servant rejoice, but let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he will stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Did you know that was in the Bible? That's some really scary stuff. David, the man after God's own heart, the picture of Jesus, calls down serious punishment on whoever this is. But David, you know, he's known as a highly emotional guy. And he's in a really bad day, and he writes this. And maybe this psalm is just preserved for us as a depiction of David's sin. Maybe. Except that Nehemiah does it too. Nehemiah chapter 6 He says, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these their works, and the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Nehemiah prays to God, God, don't forget what they did to me. Judge them for it. In Nehemiah 13, he says, Remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. 
remember them, God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. But remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah praised God's judgment on his enemies. But these two guys are in the Old Testament. David and Nehemiah, they lived before Jesus. Maybe they didn't know what Jesus is like, except that Jesus did it too. In Matthew 11, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who said, don't throw stones, turn the other cheek. The one who, as his hands are getting nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He calls down a curse on these cities, and he said, you will never be forgiven. These people are still alive. They have a chance to believe and repent. He says, no, you're all going to hell, and you are all going to have it worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus Christ said this. There is no mercy without strict, perfect judgment. There is no judgment without perfect mercy. You know, Jesus is not afraid to show frustration and anger. He has a really bad reputation as a spineless wimp, but he is not. He is a strong dude. And maybe he was just having a bad day this day. You know, but he told Judas, it would be better for you if you were just not born. Hello? He says that to Judas before Judas sins. Judas could have, maybe, repented and been forgiven afterwards. We know he didn't, but Jesus cursed him. It'd be better for you if you were just not born, what I'm going to do to you. Jesus said, if you hurt a little kid, you might as well just tie a big rock around your neck and throw yourself in the ocean. Because that'll be a lot easier than what I'm going to do to you. Jesus is not a wimp. He does not extend some meaningless mercy to everyone. So, yeah, maybe Jesus is having a bad day here, but Paul did it too. In 2 Timothy verse chapter 4, Paul writing to Timothy tells him about this man that we know nothing of except this sentence. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Here's Paul praying that God will not forgive somebody. Don't forget his sin, God. Remember what he did to me. So I'm here to tell you this morning that whatever forgiveness is, whatever New Testament forgiveness is, it does not exclude justice. It is not in competition with justice. Let me say it again. Whatever Jesus means when he says, turn the other cheek, don't throw stones, love your enemies, do good to your persecutors, whatever that means, it is not mutually exclusive with justice for your case. So now I'm going to turn a corner. I'm going to tell you what, that, what it is and how we can have faith to forgive. Because it's absolutely crystal clear that we must. But what does that mean? 
in light of these prayers that I just showed you where David and Nehemiah, Jesus, Paul, even God himself tells Eli, your sin is so bad, it will never be forgiven. It will never be atoned for. So God himself judges permanently sometimes some people. So there are people who have sinned grievously against you. And some of them have not admitted it or repented. They have justified it, made excuses, denied it, whatever. Some of the people who have sinned against you have apologized, asked for forgiveness. That makes it a lot easier. But some of them haven't. They seriously wounded you or robbed you or broke you. And you can never, ever get back what you lost. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, when he says, forgive, does that mean he doesn't care about what happened to you? Does it mean just forgive and forget and move on and pretend like it never happened? It's crystal clear. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. But what does that mean? That I just have to endure everybody's sword stabs in my life and stumble on bleeding to death like nothing happened? Where is justice? Does God care? Absolutely He does. He is a Father who cares about His sons and daughters. Absolutely He cares about justice. And His forgiveness to us, His forgiveness of the people who have wounded us, His demand that we forgive does not exclude justice in any way. Because God can accomplish both at the same time. So let's look at what God says from Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not take revenge yourselves. Give up your anger. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. It is crystal clear. God says, do not fight back with evil for evil. Give up your revenge. Give up your anger. And he doesn't allow us to just move away from the person that hurt us and forget about them. No, he says you take care of them. Jesus said, do good to those who have abused you. That's not, that's not forgive and forget. That is forgive and turn around and go do something good to them. However bad they were to you, you do something that powerfully, largely good to them. Well, that's going to blow our minds. That's not possible, God. That's not possible. Their sin is too big. You can do something really, really big. Good. Feed them. Give them drink. Take care of them. Turn the other cheek. Do good. Bless them. Why? God says it right here. Because vengeance is mine. I will repay. You've heard me say this before. Revenge is not a sin in and of itself. Revenge is not evil. It's just evil for us because it belongs to God. 
God, Jesus said it is the Father's pleasure to give, give you the kingdom. We, he has given us everything he owns except two things. God has given us Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us power. He's given us salvation. He's given us healing. He's given us his glorious riches in Christ. Every good thing God has, he has given to us except two things that we, can, we cannot have. Number one thing we will never have. It is the most holy thing in the universe. It is worship. We will never, ever receive worship. We will only give it to God. Worship is holy. Only Jesus, only God gets worshiped. But there is something else God has reserved for himself, and that is vengeance slash judgment slash justice. We are too stupid and broken to know exactly how to accomplish justice. Only Jesus can unwind the ball of yarn that we call world history that we call your life, your relationships. Only Jesus has perfect vision to unwind that ball of yarn and know who gets what. Hello? But it does say we will have it. Scripture says we will sit on thrones with Jesus and we will judge men and angels. But right now, it's absolutely untouchable. It is completely off limits. We cannot take revenge. It is holy. The word holy means reserved. For a purpose, God has reserved vengeance. It is mine. You cannot touch it. I'll give it to you later, though. Come on. I will give it to you later. When God says forgive now, it does not erase the fact that you have a court case before the judge of heaven. You have some things that were robbed, you have some things that were taken from you. You have been wronged, and He cares. Forgiveness is give it to me and let me decide when to take care of it and how to take care of it. Forgiveness does not mean forgive and forget and you just have to walk on like pretending like God doesn't care what happened to you. God says, I will take care of it. But you will wait on me to do so. That's faith. Faith to forgive. Come on. Are you with me? That's faith. Faith to forgive. Judgment, wrath, justice, vengeance, those things are holy to God and we do not own them. We have to forgive by faith now because the desire for justice in our deepest heart of hearts is absolutely righteous and right and good. And we don't have to kill that to turn the other cheek. Jesus never said, feel loving toward your enemy. He says, do good to them. You may feel like you want to kill them and they may deserve to die. Turn the other cheek. Not out of weakness, out of strength. Jesus on the cross, Luke 23. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even as they are nailing his hands, he forgives the men who are nailing his hands. Why? Because it isn't his time to judge. The scripture says he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Even on the cross, he instantly, he lived in such a state of forgiveness that he instantly forgives the men who drive the nails in his hands. And the scripture says he entrusted himself to God. When he says, Father, forgive them, it's not Jesus is saying, oh God, don't worry about it. This doesn't hurt. It's, there's nothing wrong here. It is, I trust my case to you, God. You will sort all this out. G- even Jesus, in his physical body, he reserved judgment to God. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And then look what God says he will do. From 2 Thessalonians 1. 
We boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest when God with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Paul says, I thank God all the time. I brag on you to the other churches because you are so loving and patient and peaceful in your troubles. You are so full of faith. You are proving that you are worthy to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? You're walking in forgiveness. You're walking in graciousness. You're living in mercy. And you're not fighting back. You're enduring with patience and faith your persecutions and tribulations. Why? There it says right there. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Paul says, the reason I brag on your faith and your patience is because I know God is going to repay those who are troubling you. Vengeance is not unbiblical. It isn't ungodly. It's the second holiest thing there is. It isn't unloving because love will take vengeance because he loves his children. Paul says it is a righteous thing for God, not for us, never for us, but for God it is righteous to take revenge on behalf of his children, to bring justice to our lives. When Jesus returns, how is he going to do that? In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day. Paul says it is righteous for God to take vengeance with flaming fire on those who have wronged us. It is a righteous thing. It's good and it's right. And David says we will celebrate. You all are not quite sure what to think this morning, are you? Not quite sure if you can be happy about that or not. In flaming fire, God will take vengeance on those who do not obey. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Where does that destruction come from? From the presence of the Lord. It is my very serious hypothesis that the fire in the lake of fire that Jesus talked about, that fire is the Shekinah glory of God. It is God doing the tormenting in hell, not the demons. The cartoons are totally wrong because the demons are there to be tormented. It is God doing it. It's way too long to go into, but the Jordan River and the Dead Sea are the picture of the river of God flowing into a pit where there's death. You can figure that out on your own if you want to think that through. Paul says it is righteous for God to do this. He is going to make it right. And it will be so terrible that we will be begging God for mercy on our enemies. If you don't, then you don't know Jesus. Because that is Jesus' heart. To intercede for forgiveness for the one who is nailing his hand. Here's what Jesus is returning to do. Revelation 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He himself is treading out the grapes of wrath. Jesus is coming back to release the wrath of God upon the earth. Because he is a just king who loves his people. That is a day of mercy and of judgment at the same time. Jesus himself, he himself, treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God. Revelation 14 says that that wine of wrath, that blood that flows out, is as deep as horses are tall. And it's Jesus doing it. The people of the first century, the Pharisees were expecting that the Messiah would come as a lion and he would take the sword and he would fight Rome and establish the kingdom of Israel. But what they got was a lamb who came to die as a sacrifice for our sin. Well, now in our day, Jesus has a reputation as a pretty spineless, wimpy lamb and he is returning as a lion. And he is both at the exact same time. He does not put on one and then put on the other. He is a roaring lamb. He is a ferocious lamb. He is a gentle lion. He is a kind lion. But he is coming to draw blood. The first time he came for mercy and forgiveness to release the grace of God upon the earth. And he is returning a second time to bring justice and vengeance and release the wrath of God upon the earth. And that better scare us so much that we beg for mercy. Not only for ourselves, but for those who have sinned against us. The English word forgive is actually a compound word. And we've lost the E out of it over time. But to forgive is F-O-R-E, like beforehand. To give before is what forgive means. To give before. What are we giving? We're giving up vengeance. We're giving up retaliation. We're giving up our demand for justice to God before the sin against us even happens. It is a decision we make when we say yes to Jesus. I forgive. I beforehand, I give it up. I live in forgiveness. It has nothing to do with the emotions of the actual day and time or deed or act. You may feel like murdering the person. It's totally legitimate. David did. Come on. But an act of our will is, I give justice to God. It's not giving up our demand for justice. It is, God says, give up your anger. It's not wrong to be angry about sin. In fact, if you're not angry about sin, it's because you're too selfish and absorbed in your own life that you don't care about other people. The sin of the world makes me furious. What do we do with that? We give it up. That doesn't mean forget about it. It means give it up. I give it to God. God, make this right. I believe someday you will establish truth and justice and righteousness. You will make this work. 
You will settle every case. You will redeem every life. Come on. To give up beforehand. To release our demand for vengeance, for hatred. Even giving up our charges for justice. We bring them to God. So it is okay to feel loss, to feel robbed, to feel sorrow, to feel broken by the sin that's been done against you. It is okay to have a demand for justice before the throne of heaven. It is totally okay to go with God and say, God, this is not right. Make it right. It hurts. God, I, I am full of anger for this person because of what he did to this little kid. I hate what ISIS is doing. I hate what abortion doctors are doing. It's fine. If you don't, it's because you're so absorbed in your own life, you don't care what's going on in the world. But give it up. It's totally fine to go to God with those demands and those angers and those frustrations. It is totally fine and right to expect God to fight for you, to protect you. He's your father and your judge and your king. It's totally right and fine to expect Him to protect you, to expect Him to set your life right, to restore what you've had stolen from you. But it's got to be done by faith. What is faith? Believing that you don't see. God, it doesn't look like you're making this right. But I choose to be at peace. I choose to walk in love. I choose to be a blessing. I choose forgiveness. Because I do have faith that you will bring me justice that person who wronged me will finally understand one way or the other either you forgive them or you judge them i say yes and amen to either one he's going to forgive people that it's going to make us really offended god why would you forgive that and he will but his justice is going to terrify us also true forgiveness is an act of faith it's not an emotion Your emotions may be all over the map. It's just a choice of will. And true forgiveness is not weakness. There are a lot of Christians who are cowards, who don't really want to address the situation, who don't want to stand up and fight, so they hide behind their cowardice and they call it mercy. Well, we just have to forgive. We have to give them another chance. We just have to believe the best about that person. We just have to love and accept whatever happens. No! No, it's wrong. Be angry. But give your anger to God. True forgiveness requires great strength. Being a spineless wimp is not being merciful. Wanting to kill somebody and not is forgiveness. Being wimpy is not mercy. True forgiveness is the strongest thing you will ever have to do. It is the most painful thing you will ever have to do. Because your demand for justice in your heart is not wrong. It's godly. God put it there. We want life to go right. We want other people to treat us right. We've been robbed and broken and abused and used and we know it. That's fine that you feel those things. But by faith, we have to give it to God and say, God will make it all right. He'll unravel it all later. I'm going to do my best to obey Him today. That's forgiveness. That's faith. The mercy that Jesus shows is not a weakling pushover 
who's so genteel that he extends meaningless forgiveness to everybody. No, the mercy of Jesus is displayed in the ferocity of his aggression for holiness. When we see him bright and shining and returning in the glory of God and we see how pure and strong and holy and beautiful and righteous and every good thing that he is, when we see that and we see how filthy, rotten, horrible, broken, evil, wicked, dirty the world is and then he shows mercy, that is what will delineate his mercy. His mercy is defined by his justice. They cannot be separated. So it is actually faith in the justice of God that allows us to forgive. Do you see, finally, that they are not mutually exclusive? They are not in competition. It is believing in the justice of God that will eventually come and God will set it all right. That's what allows us to forgive now. They depend upon each other. They are not exclusive. They are not in competition. They are the exact same thing. So we put our cases in God's court. We wait for his judgments. And in the meantime, we obey Jesus. We show mercy. We extend blessing. We take care of the people who have wronged us. We turn the other cheek. Not in weakness, but in great strength of faith. Can I have an amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, you are an awesome king. We love you and we want to be like you. We want to understand you so that we can live like you. We want to know what you command and what you desire of your people. Lord, we start today by saying that we are in the same boat as those who have sinned against us. There is no one righteous, not one. And we are all in desperate need of your mercy. So we ask for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for our own sin. But Lord, it is true that there have been real sins, real robberies, real atrocities that have happened in our lives. Lord, we're hurt. We're angry for others, for people that we love. Whatever the case may be, Lord, you know every burden, every situation, every life story represented in this room. You know the pains that we have walked through, the things we have endured. Lord, we don't want to just live like the rest of the world and just keep on going. We certainly don't want to harbor anger in our hearts, but neither do we want to just keep moving forward. So we come right now to your courtroom in heaven and we lay our cases before you. We put our faith in your justice. We put our faith in that you love us, that you care about us, that you will hear our case that you know what's been done, you know what's been said, you know what has been stolen, you know what has been robbed. And we put it all in your hands because you are the perfect judge. You are the holy judge. You are the one who will repay. And we trust your judgments, Lord. And if you repay by forgiving the people who have wronged us, we will rejoice in their salvation. And if you repay by bringing judgment on their lives because they refuse to repent, we will rejoice in your judgment. Whatever you do, Lord, we celebrate. Because we trust you. Because we love you. Because we are submitted to your authority. 
Lord, give us strength, give us faith to forgive, to truly forgive. Not just try to forget about it, not just endure things, but to truly forgive with the love of Jesus Christ, to do good to those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to extend blessing where we have been cursed, to bring life where there has been death. We want to be just like you, Jesus, to instantly forgive, even as people are pounding in their nails. We instantly forgive. And we trust our case to you. And we know that you will bring justice at the right time. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and establish your throne on the earth. Bring righteousness and justice and truth. Until that day, Lord, we put our faith in you to give up our hatred, to give up our anger, to give our pain to you, and to live in love and the strength of faith and forgiveness. In Jesus' name.